Okay, good morning everyone. This is Judge Lopez. Today is January 16th. I'm going to call the 10 a.m. case core scientific here on a couple of motions, including plan confirmation. So I'm going to, there's a little over about 120 people on the line. I'm going to ask parties to please hit five star. There's no one in the courtroom, so we're doing this entirely virtual today. I'm going to ask that you please hit five star. I'm just going to go in the order in which I see the names. But once I unmute your line, I would ask that you please keep yourself, uh, monitor yourself, I should say. Um, here we go. 512 number. A 512 number. Good morning, Your Honor. This is Jason Benford on behalf of Tenasca Power Services Company. All righty. Good morning, Mr. Benford. Here's a 202 number. Good morning, Your Honor. Jason Ruff for the United States Trustee. Good morning. Two, one, another 212 number. 212, I should say. I think that might have been me, Your Honor. It's uh, Ted Securities from WOW. Good morning. For the debtors. Good morning. There's a 646 number. Good morning, Your Honor. Bernice Berkovich from WOW. Good morning, Ms. Berkovitz. Here's a 713 number. Good morning, Your Honor. Cliff Carlson, the Wagosh. Good morning, Mr. Carlson. Okay, let's see where we go next. A 646 number. Good morning, Your Honor. It's Chris Hansen with Paul Hastings on behalf of the Ad Hoc Committee. Good morning. 917 number. Uh, good morning, Your Honor. Ray Schrock, Wild Gatchel on behalf of the debtors. Good morning. Is there another 917 number? Hey, looks like it's 917-699. Is that you? That's you? Uh, that's Neil Goldman, Your Honor. Good morning. The 917-204 number. Philip Kim Rosenwald firm. Good morning, Mr. Kim. Okay. Takes us to an 832 number. Good morning, Your Honor. Chairman back with you, Vincent Milton, on behalf of the Equity Committee. Good morning. Okay. Uh, one more. A 202 number. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Christine Calabri on behalf of the debtors from Wild Gottschall. Okay. Good morning. And one last one is a 713 number. Uh, good morning, Your Honor. Brett Miller, Todd Gordon, and Jennifer Hardy of Wolfie Farr on behalf of the official committee of creditors. Okay. All right, good morning. Um, let me just ask for those of you who did not make an appearance, or even if you did, virtually, I'd still ask that you please log into the Southern District of Texas website and make an electronic appearance. Find my home page. With that, I will turn things over to the debtors. Good morning, Your Honor, and I hope you're staying warm on this frigid day in Houston. Um, for the record, it's from Wild on behalf of the debtors, Scientific Inc., and its affiliates. With me from Wild are my partners, Ray Brock, Chris Carlson, and Ted Secarides, Council Christine Calabrese, and Associates Austin Crabtree and Sean Shane. Um, we have a demonstrative that we just filed right before the hearing at docket 1740. Uh, Mr. Shang can share the demonstrative on the screen if your honor doesn't mind giving him access. All right, here we go. 
um, I'll continue while we uh, put it up. Um, we also have CORE's CEO, Adam Sullivan, and our Senior Vice President of Capital Markets and Acquisitions, Michael Bros, with us in the virtual courtroom. I'm going to give a very brief introduction and then pass the virtual podium to the team to go through the agenda, evidence, and arguments. Your Honor, we are thrilled to be here today seeking confirmation of our fourth amended Chapter 11 plan, which is supported by all five of our key stakeholder groups, the ad hoc group of convertible note holders, the unsecured creditors committee, the official committee of equity holders, our minor equipment lenders, and the Riley, which is both our fifth lender and our largest unsecured creditor. We also see overwhelming votes to accept the plan by the classes of claims and interest entitled to vote. And at this point, that could come as a surprise. Um, in December 2022, we entered Chapter 11 with an RSA that gave unsecured creditors and shareholders almost nothing. We told the court then we would fight hard for more value for our stakeholders and try to get to consensus, and we were successful on both goals. Our plan pays all non-subordinated creditors in full and gives equity holders a significant recovery. We have only one limited objection to the plan relating to the consensual third-party release provision. But importantly, no one is here before your honor saying that they disagree with the economic scale in the plan. And that is quite an accomplishment. We were able to get here to hard-fought negotiations with our major stakeholders, along with the superb mediation skills of Judge Isger. We are grateful for his efforts, along with the good faith and hard work of the numerous professionals involved representing our stakeholders, many of whom I'm sure you'll hear from today. The plan has uh, numerous benefits uh, to the company that are laid out here. Um, we preserve the debtor's business as a going concern, along with over 240 jobs. We are significantly deleveraging the debtor's balance sheet. Our plan exercises approximately $400 million and secured and unsecured claims, and it results in a reduction in the annual debt service of approximately $6 million. We are receiving an infusion of $95 million in new money under the plan through a combination of a $55 million equity rights offering, which was oversubscribed, Your Honor, and $40 million in new money financing provided by certain convertible notables. We're also assuming the vast majority of the third employee contracts in an expired visit. In sum, uh, today is a very good day for the debtors and the stakeholders. Um, with that, I'll turn it over to Ms. Wilson to uh, make additional introductions and discuss uh, the agenda. Thank you very much. Good morning, Your Honor. That's, again, that's Doug Carlson as well on behalf of the debtors. So just to preview what we have on the agenda for today, so it's, it's confirmation and, and the disclosure statement, um, as Mr. Shankin said. And then we have three we have three settlement motions as well uh, on the agenda, and then a motion seeking to establish maximum disputed claim amounts um, under um, you know in connection with our plan. One thing I'm, I think I'm missing we're missing here too as well is the ad hoc equity group. They have a motion for a substantial contribution claim on, on file as well. And I think as Ms. Berkovich mentioned, so I believe everything is, is fully resolved except for one outstanding objection to our plan, uh, and that's an objection to the um, you know, third-party release provision in our plan by Mr. Hoffman. Um, so 
way we'd like to, to move forward with the hearing, if it's okay with your honor, is to give a short presentation on our affirmative case in support of confirmation uh, and final approval of the disclosure statement. Um, and then I think at that point, understanding there's going to be argument, maybe some argument on the one objection to confirmation. Um, Mr. Sekiridi, that for, for the company, will, will uh, be prepared to address that argument. Uh, but before we get into argument there, we do have one of the sound motions we would like to have presented first, uh, because one of our witnesses may be unavailable. Um, so we, we would like to take that a little bit out of, out of turn. So the, 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 um, the, the, we would do our, our presentation, a short presentation on the settlement agreement for Sphere, um, and then we can come back to, to argument on the, um, the limited objection we have to confirmation. And then we round it up then at the, at the end to the remaining matters on the agenda. I've got no issues with that. Why don't we? Well, Mr. Carlson, do you need? Can we take core the core sphere settlement first, and then just kind of roll right into plan confirmation, or or do you need to kind of do the presentation yeah. first? No, that's fine. Why don't we do that? Why don't we just get the sphere settlement out of um, you know presented on the list? Miss Calabrese from our presentation. Yeah, well, if that's okay, uh, that way I know that the witness has no issues, and then the presentation will just flow straight through, just for the purposes of the record. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, so we can be brief on the core Griffin Sphere settlement. The debtors respectfully request that the court authorize and approve their entry into the settlement agreement as set forth in the emergency motion docketed at 1663. And Your Honor, in support of the motion, the debtors have filed the declaration of Russell Can, which is docketed on the exhibit list at 1737-1. Um, I'd like to move the declaration of Mr. Ken um, into evidence, Your Honor. Any objection to the admission of the Ken declaration for purposes of this motion? Okay, it's admitted. Thank you. So by way of brief background, in September and October of 2021, Core and Griffin entered into hosting agreements pursuant to which Core was to host um, minors for Griffin. And as part of these hosting agreements, Griffin was to deliver over 70,000 minors to CORE for hosting and made approximately $35 million in prepayments pursuant to those hosting agreements. Um, asserting claims under these hosting agreements, a third party, SPEAR, filed proofs of claim numbers 358 and 359, which are sub substantively identical claims for over $39 million. Uh, SPEAR claims that Griffin had assigned the hosting agreements to SPEAR and that CORE failed to perform under the hosting agreement, asserting claims for approximately $34 million in return of the contractual prepayments, um, $5 million for alternative hosting costs, and other um, uh, other asserted claims and unliquidated amounts. The debtors objected to the SEER POCs and also commenced an adversary proceeding against both SEER and Griffin, um, seeking damages for, among other things, construction costs and lost profits arising from the hosting agreements in addition to other relief. Shortly thereafter, Your Honor, Griffin moved for leave to file a late proof of claim for contingent amounts of approximately $35 million, those $35 million prepayments, um, in connection with the hosting agreement. It's in this posture that in December of 2023, the debtors and Sphere and Griffin reached a settlement agreement that resolved the Sphere POCs, the adversary proceeding, and also Griffin's motion for leave. Um, the terms of the 
forth your Griffin settlement are set forth in the term sheet, which is docketed in two places, Your Honor, except the proposed order as Exhibit 1, which is at 16-63-1, uh, and also as an exhibit to the declaration of Mr. Cam, which is at 17-37-1. The settlement resolves the fear proof of claim, the adversary proceeding, and like I said, also Griffin's motion for leave in exchange for Spear having a single allowed claim against Core Scientific Inc., which is the entity named in Proof of Claim 358, in the total amount of $10 million. Um, the settlement also provides for mutual releases between the debtors on the one hand and Spear and Griffin on the other. The debtors believe it's a fair or reasonable settlement that's in the best interest of the estate and, among other things, resolves these open litigation issues that would be costly to continue litigating. I'm happy to take any questions, Your Honor, um, or also offer Mr. Kent to extend you any questions. Let me just ask, does anyone wish to be heard in connection with the with this settlement agreement? Just, just going up and down the line here, making sure... Okay, let me just then note for the record uh, before the court is request for approval of a settlement um, between the debtors, Sphere 3D Corp. and Griffin Digital Mining, Inc. Uh, the seeks emergency consideration of the motion um, based upon my review. I'm going to grant emergency consideration of the motion. I find that it's appropriate. Um, the standard before the court is um, whether the settlement should be approved under um, what we would call Bankruptcy Rule 9019, which provides that on a motion of party, including the debtors, uh, and after notice and a hearing, the court can approve a compromise or a settlement. Um, and the basis upon which it can be approved is not defined in uh, Rule 9019, so we then turn to uh, binding precedent upon this court looks the Fifth Circuit case law, which provides that a court can approve a compromise or a settlement as long as it's fair, reasonable, and in the best interest of the estate. Right? That's the uh, number of Fifth Circuit cases that provide that. Um, it's within the discretion of the bankruptcy court to approve a 9019 settlement. Um, so I consider whether a 9019 should be approved and whether it should be approved uh, on an emergency basis. And, and I'm going to approve this motion. I'm going to approve the settlement. Um, this uh, court is no stranger to the litigation that was involving the debtors and uh, Sphere uh, and the potential issues that were arising in connection with. There was an, originally a trial scheduled for earlier this year, which was going to, uh, and then later this month, uh, which was going to be very contested uh, based upon filings that the parties had. Um, and then the court was going to have to consider um, whether to allow a, a late proof of claim or, uh, by Griffin, so that was going to be a lot of a lot of work, a lot of complexity involved there, and plenty of time and, and evidence required in legal issues. And um, it was no easy answer, one way or the other, uh, from what the court could see. So settling this is certainly in the best interest of the estate. The court has considered the Cam declaration and finds that it provides the necessary evidentiary support to establish that this is in the best interest of the estate and that the settlement is fair and reasonable. So I'm going to approve the settlement 
um, and um, really congratulate the parties. I know a lot of work must have gone into this, and really quickly uh, to kind of come to the point where there's a settlement agreement. And I believe that it's settling this settle settling this now um, in connection with a potential plan confirmation. Uh, makes the most sense. So I'm going to sign the order at 1663. Ms. Calabrese, is that still the one that you want me to sign? Yes, Your Honor. It's the proposed order at 1663 that has the term sheet appended. You got it. Okay. I have signed that, and it is off to docketing. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Mr. Carlson, I'll turn it back over to you. Great. Thank you. Um, if you go back to slide four. So we, Your Honor, we filed our witness and exhibit list at docket number 1737 uh, in support of confirmation and the other motions. Um, just to preview what's in there, there's there's five declarations in support of confirmation. We have Mr. Rose. Uh, he's our 1129 declarant. And so his declarations in support of the 1129 factors, including, um, you know, the planned settlements that we've reached with each of the key stakeholders and, and uh, background on the business plan, development of the business plan, and the feasibility of our plan. Uh, then we have Mr. Goldman. He's the independent director for the board and also on our special committee. And so his declaration covers the governance process and overseeing overseeing the plan process throughout these Chapter 11 cases, and then also in support of the release and exculpation provisions of our plan. The third declaration is of Mr. Singh at PJ Partners. That's our valuation declaration. Um, fourth, we have Mr. Mr. Blokes from Alex Partners, and that's in support of satisfaction of the best interest test. And then finally, Jung, Jung Song from Stretto, he is our uh, declarant uh, in, um, for, uh, you know, plan voting and solicitation results. And so, Your Honor, I'm moving to the next slide. Um, we, have a we have a few other, you've already admitted Mr. Khan's declaration, we have a few other exhibits and uh, declarations here in support of the other motions. Uh, Mr. Grill is also in support of the Foundry and OG&E settlements. Mr. Creighton in, in support of the Judic Claims motion. Uh, so, Your Honor, at this time, we would move to admit the remainder of the exhibits. I think you've already admitted Exhibit 1, so it would be Exhibits 2 through 40. The objection to the admission of Exhibits 2 through 40. Okay, and that's at docket number 1737. So just so the record is clear, uh, the court in connection with this hearing has admitted uh, exhibits 1 through 40. It's at docket 1737. So moving on to the next slide, this is just our key documents we filed. Um, we filed, we just filed an updated confirmation order, so I think that's um, that one is going to change, but otherwise we filed the amended plan in docket number 1722, disclosure statement, disclosure statement, number 1439, Moving on to the next slide here is just the timeline of our of our cases. I think as Ms. Berkovich led off with, you know, from, from early on in these cases, the, the company really was committed to trying to get to as much consensus as possible and try to get to a global deal. Um, particularly with our, with our five major stakeholder groups. Um, and so we've, we've been hard at work. You know, we, we filed, we're, we're about a year old, a year in, a little over a year in this when we filed for bankruptcy in December of 2022. Um, in July, right 
before we enter mediation with Judge Isger. We've entered into a settlement with our minor equipment lenders, um, then proceeded in mediation for several weeks and months, um, and, and resolved a number of a number of really contested and difficult issues. Um, and that, that settlement then occurred um, and was on September 17th and, and finally documented in November. That was our RSA between the debtors, the ad hoc no holder, holder group, and the equity committee. And that resolved disputes over enterprise value uh, and free, treatment in the amount of, of, of claims um, held by the converts and then treatment for equity. Um, so that was a big milestone in the cases. We then, you know, only had the unsecured creditors left at that point, and we went back into mediation. And with judges yourself, we were able to reach a settlement with the unsecured creditors and B. Riley, who was our, our largest unsecured creditor. Uh, that was in mid-December. Um, and so then we were then at the point where we were at a fully consensual deal and, and moved forward with uh, full, full setting our plan. So moving on to the next slide. So we are seeking approval of both final approval of the disclosure statement and confirmation. Um, and we, I think the, think the, the, the declaration and, um, and support layout or provide the evidentiary basis that we need for each of the factors under 1129. We did overwhelmingly um, have, have accepting classes across the board with the exception of one debtor entity at class 8A. Um, and that asset has, so that entity has no asset but we, in any event, we do satisfy the cram down standard for that one entity, uh, given this is a this is a solvent debtor case and everyone, all creditors are getting 100% recovery. Um, and as I mentioned, the only remaining objection uh, is is of Mr. Hoffman's um, issues with the third party release as it relates to the securities litigation that's pending. And we will address that at the appropriate time. So then, flipping ahead. Here are the voting results. Um, as I noted, um, all classes accepted, with the one exception of the one debtor at um, and, uh, class 8A. Moving ahead to uh, quickly just give an overview of each of the settlements we reached. As I mentioned, back in July, we, we reached our settlement with the equipment lenders. There's a lot of words on the page here, but they, they hold, in the aggregate, $254 million in claims. Uh, we agreed to, you know, the, the claims are bifurcated, um, and so the secure. So we agreed to to allow claim amounts with each each of the settling um, minor equipment lenders, and essentially gave them three options for treatment. The first option is is just the default treatment and what's what they're entitled to under the code, which is on account of their secured claims, they would get a take back take back paper with the terms laid out here in number one, and then the deficiency claim would be equitized. The second option was just to equitize their entire claim, both secured and unsecured, and receive equity in 100 cents uh, recovery based on our $1.5 billion uh, mediated plan, plan value. And then the third option was a secured take-back instrument uh, at 80 cents on, on, of, of the amount of their allowed claim, um, and it would be secured by their existing collateral, each each equipment lender, and then some additional collateral uh, was provided uh, up to 50 and a half million of collateral of, of miners that would be that would be acquired post-emergent. Um, and then finally, with, as it relates to the settling equipment lenders, we agreed to uh, a pay fees of up to four million dollars for uh, for um, 
you know, in connection with negotiating um, a settlement with them. And by and large, most most of the equipment lenders, the vast majority, elected the equitization option, um, which is a great benefit for the company and, and provides us the company with, you know, about $200 million of extra deleveraging and, and um, on the balance sheet going forward. So that was right before we entered into mediation. Turning to the next slide, we then had, had a number of issues outstanding between the ad hoc noteholder group and the equity group on, on, on plan value. Uh, we also had disputes regarding the claim amounts for the convertible noteholders, in, in particular, whether they were entitled to this 2X provision, double, their, double the amounts of their principal claims under the note instrument. Um, and then treatment, the appropriate treatment for, for equity and, and the convert. And, and finally, the terms of the exit capital. And after a few months in mediation and several sessions, and, um, we got to, we got to a settlement with the debtors, the ad hoc note holder group, and, and the equity holders that resolved all of those issues. And the parties agreed on, um, you know, the linchpin of the settlement, a $1.5 billion plan value. And so then, the only piece that was left at that point was was getting um, support from our unsecured creditors committee and B. Riley, and so then we we continued to negotiate, and with the help of Judge Isger again, we were able to um, get to a, a global deal uh, that resolved their outstanding issues with the plan, and essentially provide them with incremental consideration of the plan in, in the form of well, number one, um, creating a convenience class. Uh, for holders of, of claims of $10,000 or less, that comes out to about 130,000 in cash paid to those holders, um, and then an incremental three, three and a quarter million dollars in new common shares provided pro rata to all the holders of allowed um, general unsecured claims, and then as part of for, for downside protection, uh, an instrument we call the, the duck contingent payment obligation that would give them up to $7.1 million. Uh, depending on the trading price um, of stock um, of post-emergence that up to $7.1 million. And then finally, we settled a number of um, claim disputes with other holders of general unsecured claims as part of the settlement. So then moving on to um, just a quick summary of the, of the treatment. So as part of that RSA settlement that we entered into, we agreed on a claim amount of $710 million for the, for all, for, for the convertible note holders. And that $710 million is basically, this is, this is the consideration they receive in, in exchange for their claims. $150 million in new secured notes, $260 million in new secured convertible notes, $260 million of, of equity in the reorganized company at the $1.5 billion plan value, enterprise value. Um, then a portion, they, a certain, uh, certain of the note holders agreed to provide an exit facility. And so a portion of the uh, convertible note holder secured claims, 40 million roll, rolls into our exit facility, uh, providing 40 million of new money as part of that. Um, and then finally, some, as part of some, for some downside protection, a contingent payment obligation instrument that, that's payable, potentially payable at the end of the first, second, and third year. Um, up to $130 million, depending on the, the trading price of the stock. Uh, and then finally, some, some incremental equity distributions um, it's tied to um, tied to the allowed amount of um, 
claims incurred by the uh, in professional fees incurred by the equity committee, um, and the substantial contribution claim um, filed by the equity group. And so, by and large, that was the settled treatment for for the April and August uh, convertible notes secured claims. Moving on to the next slide, we covered the minor equipment lender settlement. They had they had their each of these three options select, as I noted. Most chose the equitization option. Um, other secured claims and M&M lien are, are, are riding through. The M&M lien secured claims are now vacant because we, over the past few months, we've been able to enter into a number of settlements, separate settlements, most of which have been approved by the court. I think there's one outstanding settlement with one of our general contractors, McCarthy, uh, but expect that, assuming that that's approved by the court, effectively um, removes all of the claims from that from that class. Um, we do have to file a substantive objection to some of the other subcontractor claims that are outstanding that we intend to file in a few, in a few days. Um, and then finally, um, secured mortgage claims, we entered into agreement with the two holders of secured mortgage, mortgage claims that gave them the option of cash at 95% of face value or um, just, just amending their maturity date. Moving on to the next slide, the holders of general unsecured claims, they are getting equity at 100% recovery and, and, and reorganized for each holder. In addition, they're getting the extra consideration that was negotiated as part of the, the mediated settlement. Um, moving on to um, existing equity in Section 510B claims, they're, they're peri under our plan. Um, equity gets any of the residual equity value that remains after paying off all creditors, um, all non-subordinated creditors in full. Um, in addition, they're getting a package of warrants, two, two, two tranches of warrants. The first tranche is to acquire up to 30% of the new common shares at a $1.875 billion uh, enterprise value. That's payable, that's cash exercise. The second tranche are penny warrants at a $2.5 billion uh, enterprise value strike price, um, and then they've also had the opportunity to um, to subscribe to our equity rights offering, which, as as uh, as noted, was fully subscribed and generated, in fact, oversubscribed uh, and generated fifty five million dollars in proceeds for the estate. And then you know the Section five ten B claimants get the same recovery except in lieu of um, in lieu of uh, the right to participate, they got um, equity, equity in that, in the value of uh, uh, and as well as the warrants. So then, moving on to the next slide, this is just a summary of what the reorganized or reorganized core's um, capital structure is going to look like post-emergence, and the build-up to what the plan equity value is. And then at the bottom of the page, what the what the approximate equity splits will be. For the various stakeholders. Um, moving on to the next slide here. So, Your Honor, that is, for the reasons we, we set out in our brief and, and, and for the evidence that we have admitted, we think we satisfy all of the standards to confirm the plan and to approve final. Finally, the, the disclosure statement. I don't think anyone is challenging that we don't meet our standard to confirm 
the only the only open objection, as I mentioned, is the um, Mr. Hoffman's objection to the third party release, which um, we'll be prepared to, to argue at the appropriate time. But otherwise, um, you know, we ask that the court confirm the plan, and we'll be prepared to walk through any questions to the proposed confirmation order as well. Thank you. Uh, let me just open it up at this point, see if anyone who supports plan confirmation wishes to be heard at this time. Yes, Your Honor, can you hear me? It's Chris Hansen with Paul Hastings on behalf of the Ad Hoc Group. Yes, Mr. Hansen. Uh, yeah, Your Honor, so we thank everybody for the hard work, uh, especially Judge Isker, in helping us get to a mediated conclusion and then the parties for working hard to get to where we are now. The Ad Hoc Committee uh, has been a bit of an antagonist in the case, uh, back and forth with the debtors and other parties all the way through. We believe we've arrived at a fair result in the context of the plan, and we support confirmation. We do want to highlight for the court that there are conditions to effectiveness that we have consent rights with respect to, uh, and that's really with regard to the definitive documentation, which we're all still working on, and it isn't finalized, but and, and we'll obviously come back to your honor if we can't get there, but I have great confidence in the party's ability to be able to arrive at uh, a successful negotiation with respect to the remaining issues in the definitive documents, and we wholeheartedly support confirmation. We also thank you, Your Honor, for taking over the case in the way that you did and for the time and attention that you've given to it. Thank you. Anyone else wish to be heard? Your Honor, Brett Miller uh, and team from Wilkie on behalf of the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, we'd like to echo uh, the last comments made by Mr. Hansen about Your Honor stepping in uh, in your courtroom and providing us uh, with the wherewithal to close this case and uh, creditors committee for settlement and for uh, confirmation and hope that uh, we can go effective as quickly as possible. Thank you. Anyone else? Your Honor, Jason Benford. Mr. Benford, go ahead. Your Honor, thank you, Your Honor. Jason Benford on behalf of Tenasca Power Services Company. Just a quick uh, comment. Uh, of course, Tenasca does support confirmation, but uh, we're in a somewhat strange position. We were at, uh, we were a party to certain agreements and were added to the list of schedule of rejected contracts, but then taken back off of it. Uh, and so I, I noticed that the fourth amended plan supplement was filed this morning. And as those plan supplements have said, uh, regarding cure costs, if the cure cost is not listed and the cure cost is assumed to be zero, uh, it's not our, it's, uh, we haven't uh, addressed cure because up till fairly recently we thought we were going to be uh, our agreements were going to be rejected. So I just like to say uh, on the record that our, our cure costs we don't think it's an issue because we timely filed proofs of claim that essentially are the cure amount. Uh, but I would just like to advise that uh, to the extent that the cure amount uh, uh, and I don't believe that debtor has taken this position is zero for those amounts. We do believe it should be the timely filed proof of claim. And the only reason we're late to Addressing this issue is because of the sort of rough and tumble of leading up to confirmation and being on the list and then being taken off. So it's really just a reservation of rights comment I'm making this morning, Your Honor. Mr. Carlson, can you address that point? Yeah, no, Your Honor. I think we, I don't think we dispute the, um, the asserted cure amount. The parties are in ongoing discussions on what the terms of a, an amended assumed agreement would look like, and those have been between the business folks. And so I, I think we're hopeful that we'll get resolution on on what that that amended agreement looks like.
Thank you. There was someone else who wished to speak, who supported plan confirmation. Yes, sir. Mr. Vakmoody. Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Chairman Vakmoody from Vincent Nelson on behalf of the Equity Committee. Uh, I'll echo the comments of Mr. Hanson and others. Uh, kind of a point I wanted to emphasize is that kind of the key piece of this $55 million rights offering was a $37.1 million backstop that was spearheaded in large part by the Equity Committee. Um, these backstop commitments from the individuals uh, were mostly equity holders. There were 31 individuals who agreed to participate. And as you can, as you heard, uh, the rights offering was extremely successful. And so I want to thank the debtors, the other stakeholders for negotiating. Negotiations were uh, complex and oftentimes contentious, but we're very happy with the result that we received here at the end of this case. Uh, I want to thank Judge Isker as well for his contribution and time as mediator. Also yourself uh, for getting up to speed so quickly in these cases, as well as your staff uh, for helping schedule hearings and enter orders so promptly. And lastly, we wanted to thank the members of the Equity Committee as well. Uh, they devoted significant time and effort on a volunteer basis. And from the very first day of these cases, they advocated for the future of this company and believe that their belief and persistence ultimately helped achieve a very good result for all equity holders. Thank, thank you. you. Anyone else? Uh, good morning, Your Honor. Very briefly, Jason Ruff the United States Trustee. I just want to confirm that our office has no opposition to confirmation of the plan today. We did have some minor, I would call them technical comments to the plan early on that were addressed a, a few iterations ago. And uh, so it's from where we're sitting, Your Honor, we have no issues with the uh, plan that's being proposed today. Thank you. Just before we, aside from the, what I would call the Hoffman Objection is, are there any other issues we need to take up before I, I turn to, I think would, would be Mr. Sacarides, uh, and we can take up the objection at this time. Your Honor, this is Philip Kim for Lee Plaintiff, Morgan Hoffman. I mean, just as a, a technical matter, we do object to the disclosure statement, uh, to the extent, uh, it, it contained language relating to a third party release purporting to release our securities class action and and related issues, so, but, you know, I guess just to, to make the record of that, uh -huh. I guess we can deal with, you know, the substance of that objection, you know, when we get to it. Do you object to the words or to the legal ramifications of it? Uh, both insofar as to the extent that the third-party release as currently drafted um, would, uh, as defendants, as the debtor claims, would sort of, uh, extinguish our securities class action, and also that it does not include adequate information uh, relating to uh, the purpose of, the, of that release as it relates to our securities class action. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, at this time, why don't I just take up the objection, Mr. Kim? Uh, you filed the objection, so it probably makes sense for you to go first, and then I'll and I'll let the debtors then respond, and you can. Proceed as you see fit. Your Honor, could I, yeah, could I ask you to take that down? Okay, very good. Yep. It's hard to see everything. Yep. Are we ready? Yes. All right. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. I think our objection sort of lays out four independent bases uh, to reject uh, the third party release here to the extent that it's worded to release. Uh, and extinguish uh, the securities action uh, that's pending in the Western District of Texas. 
So we're not, we're not here trying to get rid of the third party release altogether. As we said in our limited objection, we are objecting to the language to the extent, uh, they're trying to release or extinguish these third party claims in the securities class action. So I think that's important, uh, a point I like to make. And common to these four independent bases are sort of common points that I think apply to all of them. So I'll go over them sort of at a high level at this point. So, so Mr. Kim, just, think, a, just an initial question. Yeah. Who do you represent in this, with respect here? Do you represent just Hoffman, or are you claiming to speak on behalf of the putative class? Your Honor, we represent, we are here before Morgan Hoffman, and, you know, we believe, although the court, you know, had prior rulings, we believe that we have the authority under the PSLRA to speak for uh, the putative class. Uh, as an agent. And how did Ms. Hoffman vote? Did Ms. Hoffman, did, did she sign an opt-out um, or, or take uh, a position? Mr. Hoffman? No, Mr. Hoffman uh, did not opt-out and is presenting an objection. He and did not vote. Did, did not sign the opt-out itself? Did, no, Mr. Hoffman did not opt-out to maintain his standing to file an objection. Okay. So, uh, Your Honor, there's some key facts I think that are important. That would hold on a second. No, no, I'm, com- I'm a little confused now. So, so you purport to represent Hoffman and the other putative classes, but you think that if Hoffman wouldn't have, but Hoffman didn't sign the opt-out because they wanted to maintain the objection. So, does that mean that if Hoffman goes away, everybody else goes away too? I don't understand the objection. In other words, if you believe you represent it. X number of people, and it's not just Hoffman, then, then why does Hoffman then dictate the terms of everyone's opt-out? Well, Your, Your Honor, we we had previously made a motion. So, so I guess going back to the question of since the court did not allow class treatment um, and, and uh, with respect to or didn't rule on whether we could opt out on a class-wide basis, um, in order for us to make this objection, uh, we did not opt out because otherwise if we opted out, we would not have standing um, to uh, make the objection. So we, we did not opt out. We, we are here today to make an objection, which we have uh, the authority to do so. Um, okay. So, okay. I'm a little confused by that. But I, I think we, I'm a little confused by that because I think. Um, I, I'm sorry. Maybe I wasn't. Cu- no, go, go ahead and proceed with your argument. I keep cutting you off. I, I apologize. I'm going to sit here and stay quiet. Okay. All right. All right. So, Your Honor, I think there's some common facts that are important uh, with respect to um, the four points that we've raised, and I, I think. The key fact is, is that there's absolutely no consideration that's being provided to release the securities class action claims. Uh, there's no monetary contribution being made by any of the non-debtor defendants, the 12 individual defendants that are still in the case. Um, no consideration is being provided by them. Now, defendants have, or the debtor have submitted the declaration of Mr. Goldman purporting to set forth some consideration, but the consideration they say that's being provided with some assistance 
by unidentified individuals uh, within management. Um, doesn't even identify with respect to the 12 current individual defendants that are subject to strict liability federal securities claims, right? Judge Ezra, uh, as we noted in our uh, supplemental uh, objection, uh, recently sustained the complaint uh, as to the Section 14A Exchange Act claims and the Section 11 uh, Securities Act claims. And the defendants in those claims are 12 individual defendants who are either former officers and directors of CORE or its predecessor. So there's absolutely no consideration that's set forth other than time spent, which is in every case, in every reorganization case, you're going to have members of management who provide some assistance here and there. Um, and certainly it's not monetary consideration that would be required, uh, whether it was a consensual release or a non-consensual release. Um, also, there's been no indication that the release of the securities class action was integral to the plan, right? There's been no explanation provided in the disclosure statement. There was no explanation provided in the various hearings that you've seen me at where we've made objections and made our presence known. We've invited the debtor to say, hey, you know, what's up with this? They've remained silent. And the only thing that we hear now is in Mr. Goldman's declaration saying that, well, it was a material inducement. Very conclusory. Does not meet the preponderance of the evidence standard that would be required to approve a third-party release like this, which is particularly important, Your Honor, because there's nothing in the code that specifically says third-party releases are allowed. It's, you know, under the general sort of uh, powers of the court that uh, the court could approve a third-party release, and that's important. Um, the other aspect of it is, well, Mr. Goldman says, well, you know what, the special committee, you know, we looked at the third-party release, and we think it's okay. Well, obviously they would, because two members, two, two of the three members of the special committee are defendants in our case. They are the two, they, they are two of 12 remaining defendants who were subject to strict liability securities claims. And of course, they would want these third-party releases. And of course, they'd want, to, they'd want to provide these releases without providing any consideration whatsoever. And there isn't any. The other aspects of, of this, Your Honor, um, and I think I could now turn to sort of, you know, the four reasons uh, that these facts are relevant to that, that require the court not to approve uh, the third-party release, only to the extent that they purport to release or extinguish our securities class action claims. First of all, there's the issue of subject matter jurisdiction. And the Fifth Circuit in Zale said that the majority rule is that there is no related to jurisdiction on third-party action. So you start with that premise, right, that that the sort of presumption that third-party actions aren't subject to related to jurisdiction. So you look at the factors. Does the securities class action impact the bankruptcy estate? No, right? These are claims against, these are claims to class non-creditors versus non-debtors, right? You've got potentially DNO proceeds uh, that are involved uh, those proceeds are not assets of the estate. In fact, to the extent that they would have 
implicated assets in the estate, you would have perhaps have seen the defendants move to stay the class action uh, if, if that were the case. And the case law is pretty clear on insurance proceeds and how that's dealt. Mr. Kim, can I ask you a question? So not, what what yeah. evidence are you presenting to the court to just to explain that? I don't have any. I don't have any evidence of the securities class action in connection with this case, and there's been no witness or exhibit list to support that. What evidence are you presenting about to the what? court about about the litigation itself, or what's going on, or where things are going? Um, what, what's the evidence that you want me to rely on to show that it has no bearing in connection with this case? Well, Your Honor, the 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 burden is on the client proponents, the debtor. But they have submitted the they've submitted undisputed the evidence. Here's the point that I'm making. Right. You're saying that Goldman's statement isn't, it's, it's conclusory, but it's not enough. But no one challenged it. Maybe it was enough, but you had an opportunity to cross Goldman. Goldman's sitting right there on, on the screen and no one challenged him. Right. So it's, it's unrefuted document. It's unrefuted evidence. So what do I do with that? Your Honor, that's, well, Your Honor, that's their evidence, right? They have, they have the burden. It's, and it's unrefuted, way. right? It's unrefuted. Well, Your Honor, we we are saying that it is too conclusory. But you yeah, but that's that. Now you're leaving it up to me, right? But you didn't challenge the yeah. evidence. You didn't challenge the witness. He was sitting right there. You could have asked him questions. Yeah. Well, uh, your your honor, unrefuted does not mean sufficient, right? It could be unrefuted that that Mr. Goldman says that it was a material inducement. But then it's a question of well, is that sufficient level of proof to satisfy the court that? If no one the, challenged uh, it, if no part. one challenged it, and I've got six different parties saying we all came together after mediation and parties came together and parties worked together in mediation, we went back to mediation, and now we have this consensual plan and we have overwhelming support and this was a material inducement, and no one challenges that statement. What do I do with that? Right? You can't just look at the sentence. You've got to look at the whole, the whole presentation that was given to me. Right? You, I've got two rounds of mediation. I've got... Uh, settlements with the largest unsecured creditor. I've got a creditors committee supporting it. I've got uh, the United States trustee telling me that they, you know, they reviewed and have no objection. They don't really about it. I have uh, an ad hoc committee. I have an equity committee saying that everybody's connected with this, right? So you have unsecured creditors, equity, um, and ad hoc groups, secured lenders. Everyone is coming together. Two rounds of mediation and and a statement. In, a, in an uncontested declaration saying that there's no, that this was all a material inducement to getting the deal done, right? It, it, I, I agree with you if it was just one sentence, but it's not one sentence. It's one sentence built upon five different groups telling me that, that this is the best deal and everybody agreed to this package. Your Honor, this doesn't affect any, any of those other parties. This is just Mr. Goldman uh, saying this and but no one challenged it. it. What we're saying is you're not, a litigator. You could have challenged it. You're a litigator. Why didn't you challenge the statement? They have, Your Honor. They have the burden of establishing it. I'm, I am challenging it now through argument, Your Honor. Yeah. That that you know these other parties. There's no evidence. There's nothing in the disclosure statement to suggest that these other parties you mentioned, Your Honor, um, felt that this 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 was required. That this was integral to the plan confirmation, which is the standard, right? And there, there's nothing in the record other than Mr. Goldman's statement that it was a material inducement. Um, that's very conclusory. And you can't, you can't release 
our position is, is you can't uh, approve this release that releases our securities class action claims that a court has, has said. Who is the hour? Who is the hour when you refer to the hour? Who is the hour there? The plaintiffs. Okay. Mr. Hoffman's claim, and as lead plaintiff, the claims that he represents. Okay. So, Your Honor, turning it to subject matter jurisdiction, as, as, I, was, as I was saying, that, you know, the, the class action claims uh, are not related to the estate. Um, you know, uh, our case involves disclosures by the company, by these 12 defendants who signed uh, a false proxy statement and a registration statement more than a year before the filing of this bankruptcy case. December 7th of 2021. Now, the debtor argues that, well, you know, this is kind of related to the conduct. The conduct here, changing the rate plans, uh, the fixed rates, uh, is a different issue. You know, the, 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 any mismanagement related to the conduct decision to make that are derivative claims. And of course, those are claims that are owned by the debtor, and we, we're not in any position trying to say how those derivative claims should be dealt with, right? That's not what we're here for. So it's not related to. And the indemnity uh, issue, um, you know, it's, it's speculative insofar it hasn't, it, it, it hasn't been determined yet, right? They, the, the, the defendants in our case, sorry, my phone was here. The defendants uh, in the securities class action can still litigate, right? We survived the motion to dismiss. Obviously, now we're going to get into discovery. They're going to prove their claim. And we, you know, and to the extent that there would be any indemnity issue under Delaware law, I mean, I think, you know, that's going to be present with any corporation, you know, any Delaware corporation, the stock indemnity provisions. And the indemnity itself is not enough uh, to create subject matter jurisdiction or related to jurisdiction. So, um, you know, I think that's sort of the first point, that there is no subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, I understand the defendants don't like the Mawa Bergen case because it's out of Virginia, but that decision, um, you know, is an extensive decision uh, wading through these issues that have identical facts in this case. So we believe that it's helpful uh, in the court's analysis of these issues because they're complicated, Your Honor. I mean, these aren't issues that are before bankruptcy courts frequently. Um, and I don't profess to be an expert in bankruptcy law, but I understand these issues are very complicated. And I, I think it, it, it's complicated for, for many individuals. So the second point, Your Honor, is, you know, whether there's personal jurisdiction um, in this case and whether folks have consented to um, you know, Article One jurisdiction for the resolution of the claims. So I think the first issue is, is, you know, as to personal jurisdiction, uh, we don't believe that the court has personal jurisdiction over absent class members uh, in our securities class action who have not participated in this case whatsoever. I mean, I understand that defendants say that there's some folks who've submitted claims in the prior hearing. There might have been less than 50 folks who've submitted claims. And I understand that there might have been about similar number of folks who've opted out, but only six of them appear to be potentially class members in our case. 
Um, but that being said, the other issue related to consent is whether there's been some sort of um, consent to Article One jurisdiction, which I think is important because in the Zale case, the court said that um, there needs to be some independent basis, you know, of authority or jurisdiction, um, not just the court's power to um, resolve third-party claims. And here, um, if you look at the cases related to Article One adjudication, which this would essentially do if these releases were allowed, according to the debtor, they would release the securities claims, which uh, without the, the bankruptcy have exclusive jurisdiction in the federal district courts. And uh, courts look to the actions of the individual, not the inactions of the individuals. And I think that the Supreme Court case in role and the wellness cases talk about you need to look at the actions of the plaintiffs or the folks that you're seeking to uh, obtain consent from, not the inaction. So I think those line of cases, which was also dealt with in the Mawa case, would support our point that there was no consent uh, to have uh, these securities laws claims adjudicated effectively uh, in bankruptcy court, which would be another reason why uh, the court could not approve the third-party release to the extent it seeks to extinguish the federal class action claim. Uh, secondly, um, there's no implied consent, right? The defendants or the debtor uh, suggest, well, this is just your run-of-the-mill sort of uh, notice and opt-out procedure. Um, but we think it's different here to the extent that it involves our securities class action. So, you know, as we pointed out before, we pointed this out at the class treatment hearing that the notice program uh, was inadequate because it did not include the entire class, right? The entire class here included folks who were shareholders at XPDI that became core uh, and held through those shares on December 7th of 2021. And uh, we pointed out that deficiency and the debtor has done nothing to address that deficiency. We pointed out the deficiency that um, it also did not include folks who purchased warrants and options. And it's not clear to us whether that was uh, um, remedied as well because uh, warrants would also be issued pursuant to registration statement, which, which we believe would have been prior to, which would have been consistent with the December 7th registration statement. But that being said, they haven't corrected that. And that's important, Your Honor, because in the securities class action, Judge Ezra, uh, although he dismissed uh, a portion of our case, what he did leave were folks who held XPDI shares uh, on December 7th and had their shares converted. The exact folks who never received any notice. So there can't be implied consent. The notice wasn't sufficient. Now, even if you were to assume, Your Honor, that notice was provided to the entire class, which it wasn't, right? It's not the best notice practicable, practicable right? The notice that's required for a bankruptcy case is, is a lot different than the notice that's required for a securities class action or a PSLRA case. And it's important because the notice that's required in a PSLRA case, which this case is governed, right, you know, 
has a high level of notice. It has to be written in plain language. It needs to identify the case. It needs to identify um, the claims that are being released. It has to be, you know, there's a whole slew of requirements that we noted in our brief and also set out in the Mawa case, among others, um, that are required for a securities claim to be released or otherwise settled, and which is different than what would be required in a bankruptcy case. You know, what's clear is that the notice required for a bankruptcy case is, is less rigorous and can certainly be written, uh, you know, less than plain language because folks that are involved in these types of bankruptcies are very complex parties, right? In a securities class action, the lead plaintiffs are mom and pop investors, right? And the lead plaintiff here is a mom and pop investor. And I think what's evidence of that, of the notice program being deficient, is the fact that I think, according to the debtor, only 49 opt-outs were received. And just looking at their chart, it only appeared that six of them may have been individual shareholders. I couldn't tell because it was just a table. And that supposedly there were, there were like four or 500, and the debtor can correct me wrong, opt-out forms were received. But according to them, they were improperly filled out or improperly submitted, which is, again, evidence that none of this was set forth in plain language to the few investors or class class members that did receive this notice. And we cited the Think Finance case. Uh, we cited that case before in the proof of claim context where you, you had you had only a few thousand uh, people submitted claims on a class that was over a million folks that indicated that perhaps the notice program was not robust enough. Do you have any evidence? Do you have any evidence of an individual who received and that you are aware of who's a member of the class action that did not receive notice? Do you have any evidence to present the court that that's the case? I don't have a particular document to file with the court Just to indicate any, that. I've heard, I've heard, I mean, I could, I could represent the court. I heard from folks that they haven't received any documentation relating to the bankruptcy. Do you have any? affidavits or any documents that you can present to the court that I can consider as evidence today? Not at this moment, Your Honor. Okay. So I, I think that information indicates that the notice here was not adequate at, at to the extent it relates to uh, the release uh, of uh, the Securities Act securities class action claims. And we cited cases in our brief, uh, although they're not from Texas. There's a Southern District of New York case. I, I, don't, I don't think they need Edison. to be. And I, I really want to emphasize that for you and for anyone who thinks. I don't just rely on cases from the Southern District of Texas. I think, you know, or else you, you've got to read the reasoning in cases. And sometimes reasoning in cases uh, from outside of the district make my, far more sense than reasoning sometimes the cases within my district. If it's Fifth Circuit, i got to follow it. I don't ask any questions. But outside of the district, you, you read cases and you, you understand the reasoning of the case. And so I don't follow cases blindly in the Southern District. I read every case. And so I think you citing cases outside of the district uh, is entirely appropriate. I appreciate that heads up, Your Honor. Um, I think that the Sun Edison case we cited uh, held that, you know, non-voting release or silence uh, to uh, the releases was was not sufficient to create consent. 
Um, the emergent District of Delaware case said that failing to return a ballot or opt out may not be deemed to intentionally give a third party release. And the Washington Mutual case is the same. So there's those three cases we cited in our response. And of course, there's the Mawa case, which uh, I think I think the reasoning behind those cases and all these points that we make are substantial and should be followed, uh, given the, the factual similarities uh, of, of, of any of the authorities that are before the court, Your Honor. Um, so I think given that also the notice program, as we highlighted, was not sufficient for this securities class action, uh, it's not sufficient. And, and, and the other point, Your Honor, is that, you know, it doesn't, just theoretically doesn't make any sense here that that someone would have to uh, opt out in order to preserve their claim, given that there was already securities, a putative securities class action that's already been on file. And it's important in connection with notice. I think we mentioned this before at the class treatment hearing. At the, in a PSLRA case, uh, once it is filed, and this case was filed pre-petition, um, that a PSLRA early notice has to be issued, and an early notice was issued. And those early notices uh, identified that a case had been filed, and that case is representing investors, right? And if you wanted to be a lead plaintiff, you can come forward and, and be appointed lead plaintiff. And those notices went out many times after the filing of the case, and we filed those, you know, uh, in, in connection with our class treatment motion. So that provides further, uh, information about notice, right? You, initially you have investors who think, okay, my rights are being represented in this class, in this securities class action. The notice was issued pursuant to statute. A lead plaintiff was was appointed. And then there's a bankruptcy case that's filed. And that bankruptcy case now is purporting to, well, gonna release my securities claims. When the regular investor, you know, sees notices that their their claims are covered in the securities class action, um, and it also turns, you know, Rule 23 on its head. You know, our case is a putative class action governed by Rule 23, and you know, the reason um, Rule 23 is important is because the standard for Rule 23 is a lot higher. Again, as I said, it's 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 a lot higher standard for notice. Um, a lot higher standard for counsel, and and it, it's a different standard that's being applied here, right? Uh, let me, than in the case. Let me ask you this, Mr. Kim. Um, yeah. So in middle of November, I signed an order approving, uh, scheduling the combined hearing, approving the adequacy of the notices, but then also approving the notice procedures for purposes of today. Are, are you? It, it, it seems like you're objecting to the form of notice that would have been provided or the form of ballot that would have been provided, but was the right time to take that up in connection with that motion where I was scheduled and approved the form of ballot and the notice procedures, or is the time now to contest it? In other words, what do I do oh. now with there's an order where no one really contested it in November saying you can send out these ballots to these people and now you're coming in after that saying, you know, that form of notice that you that you approved, Your Honor, um, it doesn't work. 
Well, Your Honor, we did object to this. We filed a preliminary objection to raise these issues. Did you appeal that order? We did not. It's a final order. We had raised that. So what do I do now? We understand that. Well, Your Honor, it's a legal effect. What's the legal effect of that order now? Can I now go under the kind of change the form of the order or grant relief or approve relief that people have relied on would be the appropriate notice for purposes of today? How do I then peer under the hood on that order and then start changing stuff? Or are you allowed to make arguments based on that? Well, Your Honor, the court doesn't need to change the order, right? I kind of do. If I say notice would be appropriate if you did it this way and then they do it this way, and now you're saying that the notice doesn't really work for these people. Well, we made the argument. Our view was we made the argument. The court rejected it. And also, I mean, this is a case where everything was sort of preliminary. We had objected to the disclosure statement and those processes. And then, you know, this was sort of like, well, we're going to take this up all at the same time at planned confirmation. That's not what the order does, though. That's not what the order does. You can go back and read the order. The order approves the language of the disclosure statement as conditionally approved. People can come back and object to the language, but the procedures like setting the dates and the objection deadline and the form of ballot that can be used and the voting deadlines, that's set in stone. No one's going to come back and challenge those dates today, nor can they, right? So the debtors do run the risk on the conditional approval of the disclosure statement, and that we've got to take up. And I'll hear Mr. Sacarini's arguments on that. But, in other words, we're not coming here arguing whether the objection deadline was set or the voting deadline was set. Those were set in stone on that day. Your Honor, if the defendants are seeking to apply the third-party relief to the extent that it extinguishes our claim, right, that's not something that they're presumed under the code that they're allowed to do, right? That's something that they need to establish. You're talking about notice. If they felt, I know, Your Honor, but if they felt that the procedure is being utilized, right, they're smart people. They have dozens of attorneys looking at these issues. They read the case law. If they felt that the notice program that they proposed, right, would be sufficient to establish jurisdiction, personal jurisdiction or otherwise, right, they believe that that would be the case, and they relied on it. They can't now come back and say, well, Your Honor, the milk's already been spilled. It's too late. It was up to Mr. Hoffman to suggest to do something. We did do something. We objected to it. I think what they're going to say is, Lopez, you signed an order. A little different than milk spilled. It's more there's an order saying you can do this. A little different than spilled milk. It's kind of I held a hearing on it, and you signed an order approving the notice procedures. It's a little different. I understand that, Your Honor, and to the extent that if the notice was not sufficient to reach the class and we had raised that issue. But how do we know that? How do we know? But how do we know it didn't reach the class? I'm still a little hazy on that. Mr. Secretary, I've got questions for you, too. No one's going to get off easy on this. But how do I know? What's the evidence to tell me, you know, what do I do? So now in every what do I do with no evidence that people didn't receive the notice that they said they did? Well, they didn't provide it. 
right? If you don't provide notice, like we're talking about, Your Honor, due process, mm-hmm. right? Due mm-hmm. process is that, you know, you have to give notice. And even, even the debtor has acknowledged in their filings. They say, well, you know, people who didn't receive notice of, of this, then they won't be bound by this, right? Except they turn it around on their head and say, well, they have to prove they didn't receive notice. But that's not how it works, Your Honor. But, but, I mean, they do words, not I, give notice to the folks they're trying to release claims to. If there is someone, let me, and I'll ask Mr. Secretary the same question. If there's someone who did not physically receive an opt-out notice, right? And what what do we do then? That's the that's the real question that you've got, right? Or I guess you're asking, you're saying that those folks who did receive an opt-out notice, um, even for them, it shouldn't apply. And then we're now you're saying that there are some folks who did not receive notice. So I think Mr. Secretaries can walk me through how he thinks what the third party release does for someone who received the notice and someone who didn't receive the notice. So, you want me to do that now or? No, no, I'm just, I'm just kind of, okay. I'm trying to parse through the argument. So there's kind of a, a, a due process argument. There's a standing argument. There's a, a what I would call a, a court jurisdictional argument. And then there's, Kind of a notice under the disclosure statement argument, and then there's. And I can parse through the, some of the this stuff later, yeah, Your Honor. But I mean, to to your particular question, I mean, the way I would sort of summarize it is like no notice, no problem for that person. Like we're not. I think there's definitions in the plan that specifically say what a release party is, and if they didn't get notice, then they're not a releasing party. So if someone's out there, and I, it was a similar argument I made last time, but and we put this in the papers too. If somebody did not get notice, if they can come, you know, and this is going to play out presumably through the class action and then maybe back here, but somebody says, hey, look, what are you talking about? I never heard of this case, didn't get notice, then they're not a release party and a releasing party. And then if we dispute that or a defendant disputes that, then either you will decide that or probably you will decide that. But just to be clear, we are not looking to release people who did not get notice. I mean, I think if they don't fall within the definition of a releasing party, i.e., they did not get notice, then we're not looking to release them. And our plan doesn't do that. Now, we happen to think that we did the right things to do that. But, you know, like I said last time, if we're wrong or somebody can can demonstrate they didn't get it, then we'll deal with it. I mean, we're not in the PSLRA realm. We're in the bankruptcy court. And notice provisions and notice processes are well-worn here. And we believe we follow them. But like I said before, I'm going to say it again. If we did not give notice to somebody, then they're not going to be bound by the release. And I got it, Mr. Kennedy. You may make different arguments. I just wanted to hear from the debtors just so that we had a clear record as to what their position was. Yeah, so Your Honor, I think Your, your Honor hit, hit upon sort of our related argument to that. I mean, even if anyone did receive notice, we don't believe that the, the notice was sufficient because uh, it does not – uh, it's not the best known as practicable. Again, it's it's a very long and confusing document in the eyes of laypersons, which to which a securities class action that would be used to dispose of a claim would be required to be written in plain language, would have to um I mean here the release opt-out form doesn't even identify our case. Doesn't even identify securities class action counsel. Does not have basic sort of pedigree information that you would need on the claim that you're releasing. Uh, so that someone can make an informed decision. 
Um, so whether they've received the release or not, I think, you know, if they've received it, then we don't think it's sufficient given the process that was used and the content of the release to opt-out form. And, and I think everyone's in agreement. If they didn't receive it, then they're not bound by it. So um, I think that sort of deals with that issue there. And then sort of my last point is, you know, even if this release is either consensual or non-consensual, um, I don't think it meets any of the factors. Um, you know, we believe it's non-consensual, and I think, uh, you know, there are five factors that the court would consider uh, in whether to approve a non-consensual release, and we don't believe any of those factors, you know, would support it. And I could run through those real, real quick. There's the identity of interest between the debtor and third party, uh, which is the first and second element is contribution mm -hmm. of assets. We know there's just no assets being contributed whatsoever. And, you know, the identity interest really looks at the indemnity provisions. Again, this is standard indemnity that's required with all Delaware corporations. Um, that can't be enough uh, uh, to create uh, jurisdiction um, or a reason to uh, allow a non-consensual third-party release. Um, the other factor is the release is necessary to the reorganization. The only evidence is that it's a, quote, material inducement. We don't know to whom it was. Again, there are 12 defendants in this case. Many of those defendants were not even at core at the time of uh, the petition. Uh, we're not even with core itself, but with the blank check company. So it's not clear who induced what or to whatever extent or whether it was necessary. Uh, the other factor is the majority affected creditors have overwhelmingly accepted the plan. Well, uh, none of the class members have accepted the plan. Um, they haven't made any affirmative actions in accepting it. They're not creditors. They're not parties to this bankruptcy. Um, the other uh, last factor is plan provides payment of all or substantially all the affected classes. There's no payment uh, to the securities class action plaintiffs. There's no payment whatsoever. Nothing. There's no consideration. The only consideration is Mr. Goldman's statement, general statement that certain unidentified individuals expended some time. Um, and then, you know, if you look at the factors the defendants or the debtor says, you look at to see if it's a consensual release, uh, there are five factors that they've submitted, you know, whether it's consensual, okay, let's assume for the sake of argument it was consensual, we don't agree that it is. Um, is it specific language? Um, I mean, I think Specific language, I mean, in the, in the, in the release opt-out form, we don't believe that, it's, that there's any specificity as to our particular case, which we complain about. Uh, was it integral, integral to the plan? Again, it's, again, the only evidence of that is material inducement. Um, was it a condition of the settlement? It's not so clear. I mean, I don't think it's not a settlement. Um, and then whether the fifth factor is given for consideration. Again, there's, there's no consideration. Uh, that's being provided. Um, I think so for those reasons, Your Honor, uh, we do not believe, uh, and the court should not allow the third party release to the extent it seeks to, uh, release any claims in the securities class action and our limited objection. We proposed a proposed solution, which would have been adding some language about how the releases do not act to eliminate any direct 
securities class action claims uh, uh, in our action, in the, uh, the securities class action. Uh, and that would be the relief that we would seek. Or in the alternative, um, the court could permit us to file an omnibus opt-out on behalf of not only my, uh, Mr. Hoffman. Mr. Kim, let me, can I ask you a question? Class. Do you think you could have filed yeah. a document saying, I don't believe these third-party releases should be granted as a matter of law. But if I'm wrong about that, I've opted out. And only grant my opt-out to the extent that you find. You think you, you think you you think I would have given you standing to talk today? In other words, did, you, did the, did the, did the decision to did the decision? I I I think. You know, you're allowed to argue something as a matter of law. Now, if you opt out and then show up and then start arguing, but I think if you could have filed a pleading. It could have preserved your rights, right? Many people file proofs of claims all the time, and they say, like, I don't think I owe this amount, but I'm going to file it just to kind of make sure. It's just a just a thought, maybe not for today, but 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 I do think, well, I think we, there I, are ways to, well, to, to, to not opt out, because I think depending on what I do, you now may be, you may now have to live with the decision of the non-opt-out form and the legal effect of that, because the time for voting has now ended. The folks who are calling in for the 1130 hearing. Um, why don't, Mr. Moshimer, I see you there. Maybe we can get notice out to people. I'm going to start that hearing at noon. You can just get notice. Ms. Saldana, if you get notice for anyone at the 1130 hearing, I'm going to start that hearing at noon. Um, thank you. Mr. Sacarides, let me hear from you. Sure. Um, a few things, Your Honor. Just, uh, Ted Sacarides uh, from Wagatza for the debtors. Just a uh, some quick facts. Mr. Goldman is not a defendant, and he's the declarant here. So the, there was some comments before about uh, how the special committee—they're all defendants. That—that's not true. But I, I do want to pick up a little bit where you left off. So I have the, the objection that Mr. Kim filed, and it's on behalf of Mr. Hoffman. And again, you know, he's here for Mr. Hoffman and maybe two other people: Evan, Achi, and William Emanuel. And attached to that. Attached to that objection is the opt-out form. So obviously at least those three people had it or knew how to get it. And it, it does reference the securities litigation, maybe not by docket name, but it's in there. And that's on a form that was approved. It was a final order. There was a lot of things left for later. That wasn't one of them. So that this form is the form that was approved, but it does mention securities action. And it has an opt-out box. Now, Mr. Hoffman, Mr. Achi, Mr. Emanuel, they had the document. Their lawyer had the document. They didn't check the box. They were acutely aware, acutely aware of the consequences of not checking that box, yet they didn't do it anyway. So we should really have no sympathy for anyone who got this form and didn't check off the box. They obviously knew what the consequences were. And, and so I think that's an important point just foundationally. Going to the issues that relate to these releases. And I think you, you mentioned last time, Your Honor, you know, there's a lot of talk, consensual, non-consensual. You know, our view, and we think consistent with the courts in the circuit, these are consensual because people have the opportunity to make a decision for themselves. And people did. People sent in opt-out forms, and they're, they're not going to be subject to the releases. And as I said earlier, when I cut in briefly, if, if we didn't send somebody notice, 
No problem. They're not bound by it. But there is absolutely subject matter jurisdiction here, absolutely. And we cited cases to that effect. And let me explain to you why it is. Okay, this isn't some case where some defendant ran somebody over with their truck and we're trying to release the claim. These are claims based on events that occurred at court by the directors and officers. And in particular, and we cited, we put in the, the motion to dismiss decision by the judge, which we have a different reading, I think, for Mr. Um, Mr. Kim. I'm not handling that case, but as I read it, only Mr. Levitt is left as a defendant, but be that as it may. The underlying facts, yeah, it's about disclosure. He's right about that. But about what? It's about the power pass-through, okay, which we haven't really gotten into it too much in this case, but that was part of the Celsius fight, which, by the way, they agreed we have the right to, to charge. And it's part of the gem fight going on in the bankruptcy court. It's absolutely related to given the very, very low standard of showing some effect on the debtor. These are actions that were taken by board members or management in relation to conduct at court. You can't get more related than that. And then the cherry on top for related to, and this is in Mr. Goldman's uh, declaration, and we cited three documents that are in evidence, the proof of claim from Mr. Levitt, the bylaws and the certificate of incorporation, which all obligate. Okay, Mr. Kim dismisses this as that happens all the time. Well, the indemnity is kind of a big deal. Okay, it's essentially a claim against the debtor in that respect. We're the real party in interest. If there's some finding in that case that Mr. Levitt and assume somebody else is still left over owes some money, core is responsible for that. And there's nothing specifically that says only to the extent of insurance or anything like that. We had to pay some defense costs. Insurance has provided some, but there's no guarantee that's going to be there. So the debtor is the real party in interest with respect to that claim because we have these obligations, not some new lawsuit. There are obligations under the enabling documents and the contracts that Mr. Levin and presumably others have. So there's absolutely related to jurisdiction. And the indemnity in and of itself is enough, as Judge Isger found in the Houston Regional case. That was an indemnity issue for related party um, subject matter jurisdiction. So the two cases are connected. And I think relatedly, the notion that they're strangers, I, I hear that pretty much in every filing uh, from Mr. Hoffman. But how can that be? All of these people, all of them, by definition, at one point or another, held securities of the debtor. By definition. Now, he says, again, without evidence, that none of the class members are here. That, that's not true, demonstrably so, because we know existing shareholders, existing shareholders who are members of his class, because one of the class things is somebody who purchased between January 3rd and December 22nd or December 21st of 2022. We know they're out there. And their class members, some filed proofs of claim, some opted out, some didn't, but people voted, some 700 or so in that class. So they're not strangers. By definition, they're here, many of them. We know Mr. Hoffman was here, although he chose, you gave him the opportunity, this is interesting too, you gave him the opportunity when you denied the class proof of claim to file his own proof of claim. I think you, you struggled with that and you want to make sure that he had the right to do that. Gave him like three weeks. Did he file a proof of claim? I don't think so. 
not that I saw. So something's going on here beyond just like the worry about Mr. Hoffman. So he had an opportunity to do that. He didn't do it. He had an opportunity to opt out, attach the form to his pleading, and didn't do that either. They're not strangers. They know where we are. Like, they almost act like core, never heard of them. Of course they've heard of them, and of course the two are related. Look, I know courts struggle with this issue. It's different all across the country. But I think when we're talking about these releases, in this case, for this debtor, for that action, we meet the criteria, even, even if you wanted to think about MAWA. And I appreciate your view that, look, I don't care that it's not in the Fifth Circuit. But if you think about that, the court was really hung up. And that was a trustee appeal because the securities person didn't uh, preserve their appellate rights. They were worried about the broad scope of the appeal. Here we're talking about a particular case, a securities action based on conduct of the debtors, officers, and directors that are being litigated in other claims in the bankruptcy court, the underlying facts. Of course they're related. Of course it's appropriate to say, look, I don't want the debtor now speaking. I don't want that case where my former chairman, CEO at the time, and, and CFO right now are, are in to have to be hanging out there. So if I can get a release, it's important those people contributed, as Mr. Goldman states in his declaration. And if it turns out that someone didn't get notice, their claim is not extinguished. And I think Mr. Mr. Kim purposely tries to weave back and forth between what may be going on in, in Purdue. This is not Purdue. This is not us trying to extinguish a claim that the person doesn't have a right to opt out. They had the ability to do so, and they didn't. And, and again, I hate to keep belaboring this point, but the fact that that form was attached to the pleading and they didn't opt out, I couldn't believe it. So, you know, I think there's absolutely jurisdiction over the people and over the subject matter. And I think the indemnity obligation by the debtor to the defendants in that case, whether it's one or 12, that obligation exists. And that's sufficient for the hook for jurisdiction. And then in terms of the person not having, like, silence doesn't equal consent, look, we could debate that. And, you know, and some people could disagree. In this, in this circuit, at least courts within the circuit, have said that's enough. And so we've given people the opportunity. Many have taken advantage of it. And, again, I'll stress, if somebody did not get notice, no problem. They're not going to be bound by the release. But the releases should be approved. I'm happy to address any particular questions you have, Your Honor. Now, let me just see if anyone else wishes to be heard in connection with this issue. Yeah. Your Honor, if I could have a brief rebuttal, yeah. that, that would be appreciated, yeah. assuming no one else. Absolutely. Yes, Your Honor, this, this idea that, you know, Mr. Hoffman should have opted out, I mean, the, the reason why we did not opt out is because then we would lose standing to object. I tend to disagree with you on that. I can just tell well, you that now. We, we've I, done research. Well, yeah. I mean, we had done, we, we, we had struggled with that. We struggled of submitting a conditional opt-out. We read some case law that suggested that that wasn't sufficient. And in the MAWA decision, 
itself, uh, the securities class action plaintiffs did object, and but they had opted out, and the court said you do not have standing to uh, object to this. So they did object. It's not like they, and 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 even as Zetter said, they didn't preserve their rights. Well, because they opted out, and and the court said that they couldn't object. So you know, faced with those authorities, that's all, why all we of, all of that cool stuff. I think out. I think we could have talked. I thought we, I think we could have had a wonderful conversation about how that could have played out in connection with the, the notice procedure. Like, Judge, I still want to object to confirmation, but I may get stuck, and I don't want to get jammed. But before this notice and opt-out goes out, I want to make sure that we know that I'm going to object, and I want to preserve my right to do so, and I don't want to get jammed. That, that is a fantastic conversation to have at the time around the middle of November. But then stuff goes out, and then then you have to start looking at case law to figure out what, what things mean and what they don't mean. But it would have been, a, in my opinion, a really good conversation to have in the middle of November when we issued the notice. But go ahead, continue. Oh, I, I think, so that's why I think the Mawab case, I, I know they focused on the fact that the trustee objected and that sort of distinguishes, distinguishes it, but I think the facts, given that the securities class action plaintiffs did object and the court systematically went through these issues that were present here, is, is highly persuasive in, in this discussion. Also, uh, we wanted to preserve our right to object because we are, which differentiates this from sort of the standard third party, right, is, you know, we are the lead plaintiff and lead counsel and have a fiduciary obligation on the statute. So we had to preserve our ability to make the objection, and we made the objection. So I don't think, you know, it, it, it should be held against us that we didn't opt out and then try to make some sort of conditional objection. And, and, and I, I, think it, I think it's irrelevant for purposes of today, whether you opted out or didn't. Okay. Um, the legal effect of that may, okay. may be different, but uh, your and ability then, to raise the objection today, you're not going to get knocked out you know, on its face because of that issue. I think I'm considering the legal issue on its face. Appreciate that, Your Honor. And, and, and then sort of the idea whether sort of the conduct, again, you know, those are derivative claims. I mean, they hired the special committee. You know, one part of the special committee was to investigate any potential claims they had against the Ds and Os, and I guess they determined that they didn't want to proceed with those. So that was well within their right. But as to uh, releasing the direct claims or in our securities class action claims, they're not warranted here. And, and that's a situation you have with many securities class actions, right, where you have a derivative, where you potentially have derivative claims and direct claims. And the same conduct could support both, but they're just they're distinct and different. So the fact that the conduct, which happened a year before the petition, um, you know, may have had overlap, you know, um, does not in and of itself create the sufficient nexus because we're our case is about the disclosure, not the conduct. So um, I think you know, unless the court has any other questions, um, you know, I'll rest. At that point. Thank you very much. I just want to take a short five minute break. I need to print something out. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here running solo today, so I can't have uh, just the, the courts were, were closed until 11 a.m. So when I print something out, I have to go get it myself. So if you just give me about five minutes, I will come back on and I will issue a ruling on, on these matters. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor.